Jeremy Scahill is an award-winning journalist. He is a New York Times best-selling author. He's founder of The Intercept. But because he's a 1992 graduate of Wauwatosa East High School and one of my best friends, he's stuck doing this radio show this morning. <laughs> How are you, my friend? Oh, it's great to be here. It's good to be back in Milwaukee. So, listen, uh, I want to talk to you about some serious things going on in the world, but the reason I, I rung you up is because you are an Academy Award nominee as well. Your 2013 documentary was nominated for an Oscar, and you went to the Oscars. So I want to break you down on that experience a little bit, and starting with the fact that you have distinguished yourself among your brother and sister as best child because you took as your date your mom. I did. You know, and and I uh, and and I think it was like one of the most incredible, surreal experiences of all of our lives. I mean, yeah, I, I do like war reporting. Um, I was investigating the drone program and covert assassinations that were happening in places like Yemen and Somalia and Afghanistan. And when we started doing our documentary, we, we really thought that like what we were going to be doing was just kind of like having DVDs in a in a backpack and like going around and showing them in like church halls. <laughs> and somehow our our film uh, did really well at the Sundance Film Festival, which is sort of the kingmaker in you know in the film world these days. It was started by Robert Redford. So we win one of the top prizes at Sundance, and then all of a sudden people are like, you know, this this film might be Oscar material. And I, you know, I'm I'm just a kid from Milwaukee. I'm thinking, no way, no effing way is this film ever going to get nominated <laughs> for an Oscar. First of all, it was like a full frontal political attack on like the U.S. war machine in the world. Uh, You know, Democrats hated me because it was very critical of Barack Obama. Uh, You know, Republicans already hated me because the reporting I had done on Bush. So I I really never in a million years thought I was going to end up at the Oscar for Oscars for anything. And by the way, you know, another way of saying Oscar nominee is Oscar loser. (laughs) um, but, but, But let me just tell you guys something. So just to set the broad context, once you get nominated for an Oscar, all of a sudden your like inbox and phone blows up with offers of all kinds of stuff. Um, but there are tears to it. Okay, you guys have probably heard that, like you know, oh, at the Oscars when you're backstage, you know, you're getting like Rolexes. And, yeah, you know, the swag bag. The Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, the swag bag. The swag bag for the documentary people is nothing like that. No. It's just like, you know, some organic cheese. Uh, you know, you get some Birkenstock. So you don't um, get the same stuff? So, no. This, this is a scandal that no one ever really will tell the truth about, but I'm here to tell the truth. Yes. All right. The documentary people are not treated to the, you know, the, the champagne lounge with Jay-Z and Beyonce. But let's just, you know, so, but I didn't know any of that. So, and my mom didn't know any of that. So when she's calling me, she's like, oh my God, you're going to get all these gifts. That was like the first thing she said after I love you. I'm so proud of you. But what my strategy, (laughs) do you have to have a strategy when you're, when you know this is never going to happen again in life? So my strategy was spread the love. I am going to try to figure out how to get all my siblings and my parents involved in this action. So the first thing is they have this luncheon that's a few weeks before the Oscars. And, and it's for all the Oscar nominees. And as my date to that, I brought my brother, Tim, who, you know, he's just an attorney in Chicago. He's a, he also was like, wow, this is a crazy world. So we arrive at this thing in L.A. And one thing about Hollywood that's sort of surreal is that once you pass all the security perimeters and you're inside, you know, a venue, 
everyone assumes you're just supposed to be there, even if you're the rabble, like a kid from Milwaukee who made a documentary about drone strikes. So once we're in there, we're in line to get into the place. And the person right in front of us in line is Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) So I start, I I said to my brother, you know, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to, you know, we're going to have some really nice liquor on the, uh, on the, on the tab of the Oscars. And, um, and we're going to try to get a picture of you, Tim, with every single star we can. So we start with Leonardo DiCaprio and DiCaprio turns around, couldn't have been nicer. And he's like, Hey, I really liked your film. I saw it. No. I was like, Oh my goodness. Like, can I, Wait, can you say that again? I want to like just turn my my iPhone camera on. Um, so we start off. I, I get we talk to Leo. I can call him Leo now. Vinny, I'm sorry, <laughs> boys. That's cool. Um, talk to Leo for a while. We then see an unbelievably tiny man who turned out to be Bono. Uh, and so we got we snapped the picture with Bono, and then we go in and like the guy that I most wanted to meet was the was the Somali actor who played the pirate in Captain Phillips. So I go over and I'm. Who's the captain now? With him, I see Michael Fassbender. Yeah, yeah. Who's the captain now? I, yeah, I mean, everyone is coming up to him and asking him to do that. But anyway, so but then there's also like really interesting people who do serious films and like you know legendary filmmakers, and you're you're there, and it's it it actually it's it's remarkable how kind of normal uh, a lot of those people are once the paparazzi is not around them and they're not having to perform. And like you know, I had a long talk with Christian Bale. And, and Christian Bale had been in this uh, in this movie about where he played a prisoner of war uh, during Vietnam and just had a really long talk with him about how he prepared for that. And it's like, I mean, it's, it was really it was really sort of cool. But we got like, you know, maybe 40 or 50 snaps of my brother with different celebrities. Then I took my sister Stephanie to what was supposed to be like a swag bag event. But it was sort of like the low, low, low rent version of it. You know, like the best thing there was that maybe some dude was going to give you like an electric moped. But mostly it was like skincare products that none of us wanted. Okay. Um, you know, and, but, but anyway, so um, but the Oscars thing itself, and then I'll, I'll shut up and let you guys ask me whatever you want. But I, I just have to tell you this. So the, the, the Oscar thing itself, you know, you go in, I'm with, you know, I have like my posse of people. Oh, by the way. Milwaukee folks will appreciate this. So you're only given a, a, like a really limited number of tickets. You can't bring like a posse with you. But I had heard from somebody that if you're really nice to the women who work the ticketing operation for the Oscars, sometimes they'll give you extra tickets. So I bought a bunch of really expensive flowers at a florist in L.A. And when I went to pick up our tickets, I brought them and gave them to the women in the ticket line and said, you know, my Oh, my sister is here. My mother's here. So I end up scoring four extra tickets wow. to the Oscars. Now, they were total nosebleed seats, worse than any seat at the Brewers Stadium that you can imagine. But I got a bunch of people into the thing because I thought, I'm a Milwaukee kid. This is never going to happen again. And let's let's do this thing. So we go in and I get I get a you know picture of like my family members with like Jamie Foxx. And then, then I see Bill Murray, who was sort of, you know, kind of, you know, he's just like generally hilarious. But the whole thing happens. We lose the, the award, which we, we didn't think we were going to win. Of course, it was like a, a film about backup singers that won. Um, and then after the thing, I go up to Samuel L. Jackson, who I see walking. I love Samuel L. Jackson. And I said, oh, Mr. Jackson, you know, I was dominated for, for uh, Best Documentary. Can I just get a picture with you? And he says, did you win? And I said, no. And he said, well, there you have it. And he turns around and starts walking away. I was like, no, no, Samuel L. Jackson. No, don't do this to me. So I have a picture of me in the back of Samuel L. Jackson's beret. <laughs> walking away. Whatever, loser. <laughs> That's a bold move. I kind of dig that. 
Hey, so did you ever... Can I just tell you one more story? One quick story? Please. A really quick one. So uh, walking down the, 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 the stairs, and my, my wife was also there with me, I'm walking down the stairs uh, after the, the ceremony, and um, somebody steps on the back of my wife's dress, and she trips, and she had a glass of wine in her hand, and the wine goes splashing all over my borrowed uh, Prada tuxedo, which I stole, by the way. I put it on just for this interview. Um, so people at home, I'm wearing a very expensive Prada tuxedo circa 2014 that I was supposed to return but didn't. Um, the whole product's not listening. But anyway, so I get wine spilled on me, and we still have to go to, like, a bunch of events. So I go into the bathroom. Uh, this is at the Academy Awards. I go into the bathroom, and I take my tuxedo pants off, and I start trying to get the wine out of it in the sink of the bathroom. So I'm standing pantless in the bathroom at the Academy Awards, and then I take the pants, and I'm putting them under a blow dryer to try to dry them off. It's a totally true story. And who walks in but Michael Fassbender? who had been the star of you know, one of the stars of 12 Years a Slave that year. Michael Fassbender walks in, and he sees me pantless, standing there drying my tuxedo pants off in the bathroom at the Academy Awards. And he says, should I even ask? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, wait a minute. I'm like, it's wait, not what wait, you wait, think. Are you Michael Fassbender? And he's like, yeah, it's not what you think, man. There's no one else in here. Um, so, uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein is nowhere to be found. It's okay. <laughs> so I... Um, I <laughs> I finally, while Fassbender's taking a leak, I finally get my pants relatively dry, and I'm putting them on, and he's, like, walking out and saying, like, see you later. I'm like, no, 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 wait, 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 we need to get a picture. So uh, I think he was really thinking he needed to call security. Anyway, so we do have a picture with Michael Fassbender. But basically what happens at the Academy Awards is that most of the stars are, like, antsy to either go out and smoke a cigarette or to keep drinking or to do whatever it is they do. And so I, and I, at the time I was a smoker, so I kept going into the smoker's lounge. But what happens is that when any celebrities, not people like me, but when any celebrities leave the lower level, then they send in a body double, like a doppelganger. So like Spike Lee was there, he was wearing a Kangol hat turned backwards. Anytime Spike Lee would get up, they would send another dude who kind of looked like Spike Lee to sit there with the Kangol backwards. This was blowing my mind. I was like, I want to be a doppelganger for the Academy Awards. Like, I look a little like Brad Pitt. So those, those seat fillers, how often are they getting up? I mean, is that all the time? Are there constant seat fillers just moving in and out? Yeah, yeah, it's t- totally, it's totally wild. Like they're, yeah, any, because these, a lot of these, these actors still like smoke cigarettes, which is totally taboo, or they're like doing whatever they're doing in the hallway or, or what have you. Um, yeah, there's a constant shuffle of them to go in and out and to make sure that, that somebody, at least from a distance, kind of looks like it. But also so that they don't have like half of the, the A-list celebrity seats empty at the Academy Awards. Jerry, I know you said you felt like, you, you, I mean, you had realistic expectations. You maybe didn't think you were going to win. You couldn't convince me of that because I was watching. And in the moment, in the lead up, as your category is there, my heart is thumping through my chest. Can you just take me through that moment? There, there had to be at least a little part of you that thought, say my name, say my name. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. I mean, that, that is part of it, but also, you know, to put myself back in that moment, what we were, what we had done a film about was how the war on terror. uh, And at this point, you know, it was a, it was a decade or so after nine 11, that the, the, the war in Afghanistan was dragging on, you know, the war in Iraq was technically ended, but still dragging on. And Obama, even though people had the perception he was anti-war, had started launching drone strikes and airstrikes in a number of countries. 
And one of the things we did in our film was to tell the story of innocent civilians that were caught up in these drone wars and in some cases killed. And, and so, you know, as I was sitting there that, that night, I mean, yes, part of it was really hilarious and surreal and all of that, but I felt as a journalist and as a sort of citizen of America that if I win, I have an obligation to speak a hard truth um, in, in front of that audience. And so while I didn't prepare like some formal speech, I, I, I had it in my gut and in my heart that, that if I win, I, I'm, I'm going to try to encourage all of the people that are watching to consider whether we're making more enemies for ourselves with the operations that we're doing in the name of fighting terrorism, or are we actually keeping ourselves safer? Because the conclusion I had drawn is that our operations around the world were starting to make us less safe. And in some cases, we had even killed uh, American civilians in drone strikes ordered by the president of the United States. And so I had made a commitment that if I won, um, I was going to make sure that I held that up and that I stayed true to the journalism that actually got us there in the first place. Um, but, it, but to answer your question in a more kind of uh, ordinary guy way, you, you, you kind of um, zone out. It's almost like time is moving slowly. And, um, and you know, you're, you're, you have these weird thoughts that enter your head, like, no matter which film they say, you must clap enthusiastically. <laughs> must smile. Um, and, you know, and what's that, what's that guy's name? Um, the guy who was actually sitting a few seats down from me that we were chatting with all night is now a big star. He's from, I think he's from Denmark, that Mil, Mills uh, Madkin. He, he played Hannibal. And he's, anyway, he was, a hilar- he was hilarious, too, because he also didn't win that night. And we were all kind of, we all knew we weren't going to win. But I will tell you this. We, we sensed that the music film was going to win because it was a safe bet. But actually, Josh Oppenheimer's documentary, The Act of Killing, was nominated. And it's, it's a phenomenal, unbelievable documentary. And I think he, he got robbed. We all thought he was going to win. It was a, it's a really beautiful film. Um, but, you know, we didn't go there thinking we were going to win. We were, like, really happy to be there. We were trying to embrace the moment. If we had somehow won, I think I would have shifted gears to say, all right, this is, this is the one chance you're ever going to have in your life to make a statement that like a substantial portion of the world's population, including the president of the United States is going to hear. So don't blow it. <laughs> wow. So you haven't even got, you don't want to get dragged off. You don't want the music playing. You don't want the music playing when you're, when you're like trying to say something about drone strikes, like that would have been <laughs> terrible. Well, so were you on E beforehand? Were you on the red carpet? I, you know, I had, uh, I, I, I don't know what actually got aired, uh, but I, I did end up uh, getting interviewed by a lot of different um, outlets. And I, you know, I had, I, I had kind of prepared a couple of one-liners that may or may not have been funny. You know, I wanted somebody to ask me who I'm wearing. By the way, this is so horrible and rotten. Um, my, um, my fellow filmmakers, Rick Rowley and David Riker, who were with me, nobody offered to give them tuxedos. Like Prada called our distributor and said, we want to dress Scahill. I was like, this is hilarious. So I literally got to go before the Oscars to Prada's headquarters in New York. And, um, and, and then, but actually Bradley Cooper had the same tuxedo as me. So I was like, Brad, Brad, we got to talk, man. This, <laughs> this can't like, be, this I will not stand. I'm wearing blue, you know, which was, un- yeah, it's unbelievable. Bradley Cooper wearing my tuxedo. Anyway, but they tell you then you have to return it afterwards. And I, you know, obviously I didn't do that, but, so I wanted someone to ask me because I was going to say I'm wearing Pravda, which was the old Soviet Union newspaper instead of Prada. Um, no, it was, 
No, I mean, but, but listen, it, you know, I'm, yes, I mean, I'm a journalist. I do, I do serious things, but I also like, you know, I mean, I grew up in Milwaukee. My family, my parents are nurses. Like we don't come from some kind of journalistic pedigree or some elite family. And so, you know, I, I, when I was being interviewed by some of the entertainment channels, yes, I wanted to represent what our film was, but I didn't view that as like, this is the moment when I'm going to give my political speech. I tried to think like, if, 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 you know, if my uncles are, and aunts are watching this, how, how can I talk about this stuff to them in a way that's going to resonate on a night when most Americans are gathering with some food and pot, you know, whatever they're making and they're watching the Oscars. So I always tried to inject something that I felt was like important for us as a society to know, but also like, you know, recognize where I am, you know, and, and, and try to just always be a human first. Yeah, we're journalists, but first you're a human and you have to be able to like, you know, be part of the human experience. So I mean, I would joke around with people and then pivot to something serious. And I think that, you know, that that actually is in general, in all of our arguments, we have in a divided time, you know, in America right now, when, when it's loony season, you know, we have to remember that people are people. And if you can find a way to connect with people on that level, it becomes less important what your politics are, you know, because humans are human. You know, what's amazing to me is, Jerry, you're a New York Times bestselling author, a renowned investigative journalist. People know your work around the world. You're an Academy Award nominee. But when you come home to your house, your mom and dad just want to tell you all about your buddy Vinny, who's doing such a good job on the radio. <laughs> you know, what, one, one thing, I'm, I'm speaking to you now from, from Zagreb, Croatia, you know, which is a NATO country that's involved right now with the war in Ukraine. And, um, uh, you know, and what's amazing to me is the other day I was at a journalism conference here in Zagreb and all anyone could talk about was the, was, was two things, the Greendale high school cheerleading squad. Um, <laughs> and this is, uh, this is uh, unbelievable, Vince. You, you aren't going to believe this, but the foreign minister of Croatia was asking me if I know the guy who keeps winning these lawn wars in Wisconsin. <laughs> it's and you unbelievable could say yes. Spread to, I said, oh, wait a minute. What's, what's that guy, Lance? Uh, what's his name, Lance Allen? Yeah, yes. I know. No, no, they all knew it was, of course, Vince Petrano. I mean, this was discussed at the NATO ministerial meeting. How are we going to confront if the lawn wars spread out of Wisconsin and they start to creep up to the Belarusian border? What are we going to do with Lance <laughs> Allen's yard? All right, fine. I didn't need that. I mean, you know. <laughs> hey. Uh- <laughs> God, I'm way over time here. Uh, let, I do want to ask you, since you are in the region, a uh, serious question on the topic of the war in Ukraine. You've done some recent writing on this and the motivations behind it and whether or not the debate that we're having is as robust as it ought to be. How does this conflict end, Jeremy? Well, I mean, all, most wars have to end in some form of a negotiated solution. And I, I, I think the really painful question that we have to ask right now is, uh, if if we continue down this path of multi-billion dollar arms packages to Ukraine, is it going to actually stop the the bloodbath anytime soon? And and are we essentially engaged in a proxy war uh, to fight the to the death of the last Ukrainian? Is this really about defending Ukraine or are we trying to take Putin out? The Ukrainian people deserve the world's support and solidarity. But on a strategic level, at some point, you have to ask, uh, what is the clearest path to stopping the slaughter? And, and I think that in our discourse, 
It's unfortunate right now that some of the more more loony Republicans are kind of the ones voicing prominent opposition to Biden's policy, because actually all Americans should care about this. This is a nuclear power that is being uh, provoked right now, and it's waging an illegal war. I think Putin should stand trial for war crimes. But on a human level, we, we really have to start thinking, how do we bring an end to this that saves as many Ukrainian lives as possible and doesn't reward Putin for invading his neighbor and butchering thousands of civilians? You, and, and those are complicated questions. Um, but I think it's, it's, we, we have to have that debate because our weapons are at the forefront of that war. You know, I'm glad you brought up that um, the topic of civilians being slaughtered and murdered, because I think oftentimes that seems to get lost in the translation or in the fog of communication where a couple of people were killed or a couple of people killed over here, there, that. And and I don't know if that really hits with people here. I mean, we're talking about moms, dads, cousins, aunts, uncles, workers, just people just getting murdered. I'm glad you said that because. You know, I think I think that, you know, and also this happens on the left in the United States, where people tend to think of it just as like a a geostrategic chess match that the United States is the sort of villain behind the curtain. And there's truth to that. You know, of course, if you look at the history of U.S. covert operations and wars and Iraq and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, um, you know, and I've been in many war zones, uh, if any of us faced a, a situation where a hostile power was coming in and trying to kill our families and take our homes, um, most human beings are going to resist and they're going to fight back. And, and that's what happened in Ukraine. Um, but when you then have major world powers getting involved that have their own agendas, are they centering the, as their priority, saving as many civilian lives as possible? Or, or are we also part of continuing a war that should end? And, and I think, you know, I don't have answers, um, but I pay attention. And I know what it's like to be in a war zone. And I've seen people killed in war zones. I, I know it's very early, early morning radio here. Um, but I think it's important for people to think about this. Never when you watch these things happening, whether it's the earthquakes in Syria and Turkey, the war in Ukraine or American wars, that at the center of it, the people that suffer the most, that die the most are the civilians. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that when we, if we treated war and the stories of civilians the same way we do when there are mass shootings in the United States, where we know the names of the children who've been killed in these schools. We see reporting about the lives lost and the dreams shattered. If, if we, we reported on war in the same way, I think many more Americans would be much more critical. Uh, and it's true of Russians and others around the world. We as journalists have an obligation to humanize the people that live on the other side of the barrel of the gun. Because like I said about the Oscars, too, um, humans are humans. And I, and I, I think there's a, a profound power to appealing to the genuine goodness of others to stop harming one another. Talking with investigative journalist, graduate of Wauwatosa East High School, founder of The Intercept, Jeremy Scahill. Jared, there, where you are living right now with your family, with your wife, with your children in the Balkans, what is the perception of the reality of a possible nuclear escalation in this conflict? I mean, for for the past year, I mean, there there were times over this past year where people were, you know, buying iodine pills and uh, talking about how they can stockpile water, looking at 
renovating old fallout shelters from the height of the, the Cold War. And I, I think for a lot of people, particularly in the early stages of the invasion, um, it was tense all throughout uh, Europe. Um, you know, I was just recently in Germany and Austria as well. Um, and, you know, I think on the one hand, you, you're starting to see fatigue. People at the beginning were saying Putin must be stopped. Now you're getting a sense that people are feeling like this war is dragging on uh, for too long and doesn't seem to be uh, you know, moving in a favorable direction. Um, and so I think people are, are increasingly wanting a negotiated solution. Um, but I think the fact that you have major nuclear powers in what I think is indisputably a proxy war is very, very scary. And, and you know, you hear in Milwaukee, too, on the news um, about sometimes these nuclear facilities are under siege in Ukraine and elsewhere. In some ways, that stuff is more scary to people than the, the possibility of a nuclear weapon being used, because it seems like it would be much easier to have a horrifying Chernobyl-type incident occur that then sweeps across other parts of Europe. And, and so it is real. It is a real, uh, a real concern. I mean, in Croatia, where I am now, also a few months ago, there was an errant drone, uh, that uh, armed drone that just crashed in the country. And it's still not clear, like, where it came from. So, you know, it's not like I'm on the front lines or something. But in general, you know, people talk about this every day, you know, and as, as we would in the United States, if uh, something of this nature was happening in Canada or Mexico or Bolivia, I mean, we would be concerned about that. And just because it's a half a world away doesn't mean there's not other human beings that will pay a very heavy price for a war that, quite frankly, we're helping to fund and arm. And, um you know, all of us, I think, do have some level of moral responsibility to spend some time thinking about this stuff every day. Dude, that was super awesome. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with a half hour of tape here, but we'll figure it out on our end. Um, you can, and, you just cut it, just cut it into, just cut it down to the uh, to the Oscars stuff. It's it's, it's just Samuel Jackson. I never get to talk about that anyway. Just the Samuel Jackson story. Just that yeah. one bit. That's it. <laughs> Did you win? 